Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. My name is Alex. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Martin. Hello, Alex. I like the as always because I was just wondering if we we've never yeah we've always been together on this podcast. We have. There will come a day, maybe, where we're we're splitting um, responsibilities, but not yet. <laughs> Good stuff. Okay, so for today's episode, we are looking. Uh, we're going back to Mars because China have just made their first steps on there. Uh, we have an interview with Jasper Wilderboer. And then for the tech spot, we're going to get a bit geeky with SCADA, HGMI, and Internet of Things. How does that sound? Well, it's HMI, but yeah, that's fine. HMI. <laughs> I knew I would get that wrong as soon as I wrote it down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a bit, a bit old school, a bit old school technology, but it's moving into the IoT world or the industrial IoT world. So we'll talk about what all of that means and the slight differences and maybe touch a little bit on a very common protocol called OPC, which has pretty much been the foundations of how control systems talk to these visual systems in the future or, and today and yesterday all the time. Anyway. Sounds good. Uh, all right, well, to start with, um, yeah, we love space, of course, uh, and China drives its rover on the surface of Mars for the first time. This is the the Zhurong rover, um, which China have uploaded some nice footage of. It's got a, it looked like a different delivery system to me rather than the SkyTrain because it had a nice little ramp that it drove down onto the surface of Mars. So now there's two of these rovers roving around Mars. Yeah, well, that's, it's incredible, isn't it? Because obviously in the world that we live in and we understand the Western view of, the, of all of these types of things, that China's really is doing a lot of, um, I mean, in quite unilateral way as well. They, they, they're, they're looking at building their own space station. They've got mm -hmm. their rover on Mars um, and now it's up and around and moving. I, I assume Mars is a big enough place. For, two rovers not to meet each other but um yeah hopefully it's not a this this planet ain't big enough for the two of us sort of thing <laughs> i imagine they've got their own area i think there's probably going to be a third country uh, trying to get up there as well um uh, because you'd imagine um both europe and russia uh, i think are also planning joint joint um rover missions if we're allowed to use the rover in that kind of loose terms um in 2022 as well so yeah um, it, it, there's going to be quite a few starting few to get them. busy i know uh, china as well are quite active around the moon i know they have satellites and i think current rover on the moon as well so hmm. like you said it is it's quite a unilateral approach they're they're here there and everywhere with their space race Yes, they were going to the dark side of the moon, weren't they? I think if there is such a thing. But uh, yeah, I think they were going to the poles or something. But so yeah. they're definitely very active, um, uh, and it's great to see in a way. I mean, maybe the the level of interest, or could we call it competition, or whatever it is, always um, does create a certain amount of energy within the whole system. Um, so I think yeah. so. You sort of you want it to be. Um quite friendly competition unlike i think the space race was very um yeah antagonistic perhaps between the usa and russia but hopefully 
everyone's going there for the same reason to discover and to find things of interest. But yeah, knowing that somebody else is doing something does spur you on to do maybe something a bit better. Hmm. So good on them. Good on them. As in, we're all part of the human race. Hey. So, um, so China successfully achieving that, and you know, historically, there has there's been a fair amount of success about landing things on Mars, but it's it's notoriously difficult because of the atmosphere and the conditions on Mars to make sure you get a successful landing. So there hasn't been a huge percentage um, success rate about achieving uh, successful landings, let alone um, driving on Mars. So there's some interesting things, stats on the uh, NASA website about Mars. Um, today's weather forecast, you can check out there, highs of minus four, lows of minus 98 so that is chilly yeah but you know find the fun find the sunny spot on mars um yeah <laughs> and also the, it's got a few of the the distances from from the sun obviously um at the moment we've got the earth at 93 million miles on average um where the Mar mars is on 142 million miles on average Obviously, some of them are slightly elliptical. Um, yes, there's, and that's why you can only launch, or it's only efficient to launch projects or uh, missions to Mars at certain points mm. of certain years, isn't it? Because otherwise, the distance is much longer because the, our orbits are not aligned on a, in a circular sense. Like you say, they're a bit elliptical, so sometimes Mars is much further away, and sometimes it's much closer. Uh, yeah, and you need sling slingshots from other gravity pulls from other, you know, all that type of thing. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot to consider because that's the distance to the sun. Obviously, the Earth changes rapidly depending on where we are in the orbit compared to the to Mars. So mm -hmm. if we're both the other side of the sun, um, then that makes it a bit tricky. But yeah, so there's definitely an optimal mile, and that that coincides obviously with the fact that. There's two there at the same time because they're both looking for that optimal um, pattern of the configurations of the planets to be able to make the most efficient use of the fuel, etc., to get to Mars. Absolutely, and Perseverance. We have more news from them. Their their little Ingenuity helicopter has flown. It's done. Uh, a, it has proved out powered flight on another planet. It's the first time humans have ever done that. Yes, and it's done it a few times now. So um, you know, it's it done a few little little hops, um, and now um, now it's so far up, it's casting a shadow back onto the back onto the planet's surface, which is it's quite yeah. It's always lovely to see those kind of images of the fact it's that high up, it's casting a shadow mm. back onto the onto the surface of mars so it's fascinating stunning. stuff yeah brilliant stuff yeah um, and if you if you head to the the website there's actually a little video in that old school 3d of the blue and red filter and a little explanation of how you can make your own 3d glasses so you can watch ingenuity as though you were actually there on the surface <laughs> pretty cool huh? excellent all right well that was just a quick update on space big as it is um obviously anything that comes up we love it so we'll we'll bring it up again as soon as there's news on it mm -hmm. um, but for the time being i think we should jump into our chat with jasper 
And so, for this interview portion of the Atlas podcast, we are joined by Jasper Wilderboer, uh, who is Director Partner Channel in the Benelux area of for Siemens Digital Industries Software. Have I got that right? Very good. Yeah, it's a long name, I know. <laughs> but good thanks. Stuff. thanks for joining us. And uh, yeah, if you'd like to perhaps give us a bit of a background, how you got to Siemens, and we can uh, go from there. Yeah, of course. Um, well, thanks for having me here. Um, I'm uh, with the company Siemens for the past uh, decade already. Uh, long history with uh, with partner business, uh, starting uh, uh, 10 years ago with, I think, only uh, two or three partners in uh, in the Benelux region. Uh, today, we have roughly 20 uh, partners and, an, uh, and a small team serving the partners. Uh, within Siemens, uh, we cover a lot of uh, technology, uh, as you maybe know, uh, around uh, manufacturing, engineering. Um, uh, so we offer solutions in, in, in the space of CAD, CAM, simulation, uh, product lifecycle management, and obviously also on uh, the mass mom domain, where we have other type of partners. And uh, with our recent uh, acquisitions of, uh, of Mendix, we are also entering the low-code space, uh, adding a lot of new partners as well. Uh, so yeah, we're still growing, uh, exciting uh, on on the side of uh, of Siemens to see how we fulfill uh, our vision of uh, of the digital enterprise. Perfect. We'll take a couple of steps back there, just but just to get a little bit to know about you, um, about what you've been up to through your your career. That a lot of the time we have quite technical people on here, but you're coming from more of a, a business background. Um, so you did your your university, your bachelor's degree in that kind of space. What what was the what yep. attracted you into the commercial business <laughs> aspect of life? <laughs> oh, so that's a nice question. Yeah, I'm, I may be a little bit old in uh, in this technical domain. Uh, I have a uh, business economic uh, uh, background. Um, uh, again, I started ten years ago with uh, with Siemens, uh, but before that, I had uh, several sales roles in my uh, my career. Uh, always active as direct sales in uh, uh, in the world of uh, CRM software, uh, custom related software, uh, quality management software. And before that, I was always very active in the hardware business. Uh, so always selling uh, upfront. And um, yeah, then then in uh, uh, 2010, I started uh, in, in the technical domain. Yeah, that was a bit odd, uh, not in line the expectations maybe <laughs> back then. Uh, to be really honest, I thought that Siemens was uh, more in, uh, in in the space of uh, refrigerators and, and that kind of stuff. So it was really <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really off. Um, uh, of of uh, of knowledge there, uh, but um, yeah, I, I never regret this decision that I made uh, towards uh, towards Siemens. It is fantastic to see. I think in 2010 when I joined the company, uh, it was still in an early stage after the initial acquisition of, uh, of Siemens. Uh, so Siemens acquired um, Unigraphic uh, VGS. Uh, corporation in uh, 2007. Uh, basically, the company exists then uh, only about uh, CAD, CAM, uh, simulation tooling. So it was uh, still quite simple for me also to digest what it was about. <laughs> and during the, the, the past 10 years, um, uh, the company Siemens invested uh, more than $12 billion of, of all kinds of acquisitions. And some are very big and some are very small. Um, but from a business perspective, uh, again, I, you should not ask me the, the, the technical 
technical details. Uh, still to date, uh, I'm not the right person to ask these kind of questions. Uh, I rather look uh, look to the to the business side of it, and I see a an, an great contribution of the technology we deliver to our customers. Um, uh, that's where it's all about, and that's also in, in line of the vision of Siemens. Um, Siemens is believing in connecting uh, the, the, the digital world to the real world and, and how to benefit from that, not only from, from our perspective, but of course, from our customer perspective. And uh, that's very interesting. I think looking to my job specifically, uh, being uh, and responsible for partner business, uh, yeah, that has to do, of course, with, with understanding how we deliver our technology uh, to our customers through partners. Yeah, so we have a an, an, an clear go to market. One end is uh, is directly by Siemens, where we serve usually uh, the large enterprises, the OEMs, uh, and, and uh, the bigger tier one companies. And the rest of market, we serve with, with partners. And uh, it has a very good reason for that, because our partners are close connected to uh, to the customers, to the market, uh, can adapt um, uh, to uh, to changes and, and our technology quite quickly. Um, and it is yeah, what I really like is you can really see um, uh, the power of our technology in real life. Yeah, so when, when customers adopting a, a, a MES solution or a quality solution or planning and scheduling, you immediately see the benefits they are gaining with that technology. And uh, again, you should not ask me about the bits and bytes of the software. <laughs> That's not the right, um, uh, right level playing field for me. But from a business perspective, yeah, it is very cool to see the impact of our technology to those, uh, to those companies and also our partners. So, so when you end, so, so there are anything you learned in university that you think is relevant? Because a lot of times, some people go, oh, "I did university, and it was more of the experience about it." But do you see any of those kind of business acronyms that you learned then that apply today? Uh, well, yes, of course, it's <laughs> this uh, more than 20 years ago that I uh, went to yeah. university, so it's a long time ago. Uh, yeah. But yes, definitely, uh, definitely in my role, uh, because uh, in my role as, as um, uh, taking care for the partner business, I talk usually with the business owners and, and uh, C-level um, uh, people in uh, at our partners. And that's where you talk about um, uh, yeah, business, about how to drive business. Um, uh, so uh, in, in, in relation with uh, with ATS, by example, uh, I have regular meetings with uh, with Paul Bron and with the management meeting to talk about you know how how do you want to develop your company towards the future? How can we help from a Siemens perspective in, in delivering not only the right technology but also the right business models? Um, so we talk not about uh, the technology on that level. We talk about how to deliver the business uh, through a partner like ATS to the end customer. And um, there are a lot of changing. Um, um, uh, domains currently. If you look in, in, in the trends in the market, you see a shift uh, of how um, uh, our customers, our joint customers, uh, are adopting technology. Yeah, where uh, in, in um, the, the the regular world, hey, you adopt software, you buy a piece of software, you put it on a machine, and you work with it. And the world is changing. The world is changing to to cloud, to SaaS structures, and it has a huge impact, uh, not only for our customers but yeah. also for our partners. Uh, how to bring that technology? We have to focus on service. Um, yeah, and that are interesting discussions. Uh, again, that's far away from the actual technology, uh, mm. but it has everything to do with uh, with the business, of course. And, and that's definitely something that's on our mind, especially with the, we talk a lot about cloud and SaaS and these types of things, and not so much on the, 
I'd say the business models associated to it, but they're, they're so powerful and underpinning this change, aren't they? Um, the, the, the technology's there, but the actual business models that can be adapted, the methodologies for deployment, all of those types of things, I guess it wraps up into the word value proposition. The value proposition to customers changes, doesn't it, with the, with the cloud approach? Yeah. Yeah, definitely, and also uh, the ease of doing business. Um, if you look to to the to the bigger um, uh, enterprise software vendors uh, like like uh, SAP, Microsoft, Salesforce, and uh, I, I will place uh, Siemens in that same list as well, then you see uh, that that uh, if you look to an, an, an Salesforce, by example, or Microsoft, uh, they are really offering a software as a service um, uh, only, and and this is the this is where the future goes to, and I know. Yeah, especially in the domains where, where ATS is uh, strong in as well, in the MES mom domain, there's quite a conservative business still uh, today. Uh, <laughs> the, the companies like to have the software on-premise, on a machine that they can physically see. Uh, but the world is changing there as well. Um, and, and maybe it is also um, uh, fed with uh, the, the, the COVID uh, trend uh, that uh, you have to work more remotely. Uh, you have to be more agile in, in, uh, in, in using your machines from a Distance, um, yeah, and that requires also uh, a different level of uh, of adopting uh, technology uh, faster and more easy, um, and uh, yeah, that has an impact, of course. Yeah, and are you seeing those? I know you mentioned them, but are you getting more and more customers asking for that kind of thing? Because, like you said. Generally, it can be quite conservative, especially in the manufacturing domain, and change is probably slower in many, you know, many aspects of that. But um, yeah, it's by the sounds of it, you are seeing a real change in those conversations happening with customers. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, and I'm very close involved in in our uh, recent uh, acquisition with Mendix. Um, uh, also, one of my my side jobs there to help this company integrate in the big Siemens organization. And you immediately see that there are really two different worlds. Uh, obviously, mm. Mendix is an uh, is a SaaS uh, subscription driven business only. Um, but um, if you look to the more conservative business like uh, CAT, CAM, simulation, uh, it's already there. Uh, uh, CAT in the cloud, simulation in the cloud, it is already offerings that, that are there. Uh, and that was also being seen as, as a very conservative business, uh, but companies are doing that transition. Um, uh, so I, I'm, I'm a true believer that this will happen in the MES domain as well. Uh, it is just a matter of time um, uh, that it will uh, that it will happen. Uh, but technology is evolving so fast, um, and and uh, as a company, you need to uh, keep pace with that uh, with those changes. And the only way to do that is uh, yeah to have your technology uh, flexible, available, uh, and not on a physical machine, but then in the cloud where you can uh, mm. turn it on and turn it off whenever you need. Yeah, we've talked a bit about low-code and no-code platforms and things like this, and you know, Mendix, as you, you mentioned, there being one of the one of the leaders in that domain. Um, and from our perspective, once again, the, the the sales approach is different because before there'd be a list of requirements that you were trying. Maybe there's a request for proposal, and you're trying to match those requirements and all that kind of maybe a long sales cycle associated with, like you said, especially in the MES domain. But with Mendix, it's a it's it's, it's a different approach, isn't it? Maybe can you do, explain what you how you feel that approach changes with Mendix? 
Uh, yeah, I think you're you're completely right. Eh? I think from a, from a selling perspective, there are different ways to look at it. Eh? Uh, if you look to a traditional selling uh, um, uh, model, then then uh, typically you have a sales guy or a girl uh, selling uh, the software um, uh, and pulls it over the, uh, the gate to uh, to the delivery organization. They implement it, configure it, and that customer ends in the end in an, in a support mode which is okay, it is an automatic renewal, so the, the maintenance is going on and the support is going on, which is nice. And if you look to a an, an subscription-driven business, and uh, if you look even to a SaaS model, uh, then the whole way um, of, um, um, uh, of selling is changing because it's not about the first hit, it is about the complete customer lifetime uh, that you need to sell. Uh, because if you are on, an, on a SaaS environment or on a subscription level, the customer uh, can every year choose uh, where he want, where she she wants to go. Um, uh, well, I think with, with the MES and MOM domain, it is a little bit more difficult because uh, it are very complex processes and you won't switch every year from an MES mm -hmm. system. Uh, at least that's not recommendable. Um, and within, uh, within Mendix, that is much more volatile. Um, uh, it is easy for customers to say, you know, this year I will uh, renew my business with partner A and, and next year I do it with partner B or I go to an, a complete different technology. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, that's a risk, of course. And that risk you need to uh, cover with the way how you sell it. So uh, we really make uh, distinguish two types of sellers. You have the we name it the, the, the land new business uh, sellers, and they really open doors and, and uh, bringing the first uh, step to uh, to a customer and the first value to a customer. Uh, but then it will be hand over to, uh, and that you you will see that in many companies, the customer success teams. Um, again, the big vendors uh, have all customer success teams. And these teams take care of uh, commercial aspects in growing a customer uh, in that lifetime. Uh, it starts small, it is a snowball effect, and you will see that the customer will grow in the technology and adopt more technology along the way. Hmm. And that's interesting because uh, from a business perspective, and there you go away again from the technology, but from a business perspective, you have an, an, uh, a rateable business. Uh, so you, you can better predict uh, your future revenues, uh, which is very uh, interesting, uh, not only for a vendor, but also for our partners and for our hmm. customers in the end, because they have a more planable uh, spending uh, in, in their operational costs. And, and, and yeah, for, for partners as well, it allows for them to, predict a level of investment and training and support you know it does does mean that it's less volatile it's not just that kind of project mentality um you can kind of start to build up teams for uh, and get a bit more specialist and not so much reinventing the wheel as well which has always been a bit of a challenge potentially um, yeah, with that. Um, and where, what role does the marketplace play in this you know the the digital the rise of the digital marketplace is also a yeah an interesting concept isn't it well also here i think uh mendix has has a uh, strong ambition to uh, to become uh, one of the largest marketplace in in the world uh, which is a great ambition and um, secondly it is the way yeah how do we want to position marketplace um, i have my own ids of it and we still need to launch the official marketplace eh, because it's not live yet uh, if you ask me then then uh, in my opinion it is a little bit comparable with um, uh, uh, with your Apple marketplace. 
Hey, you you download a um, uh, an application, and this application is um, uh, is is wrapped in a limited edition. And once you want to use it to an extent, yeah, you need to acquire the full license. And uh, so I see it on one hand as as an uh, as a as a big lead machine with a much wider um, uh, audience because yeah, you can push it throughout the whole world, of course. Um, and uh, and that's where we go for uh, the first entrance in many companies, and uh, that's. And great uh, lead generator because uh, once you start with an application and you see the first value of it, uh, it gives you the appetite uh, to do more. And it gives you the appetite to say, okay, let's go for the full license and find the appropriate partner and develop this license further into a more mature solution. And that's typically with Mendix. Eh? Mendix, in the end, it is a big uh, Lego box. <laughs> um, uh, and, and you have to find the right solution. And um, um, that's where Mendix believes in as well. Eh? So the, we are really developing a lot in the solution place. Um, so where we can uh, enter new companies uh, with a first high value value show the money to the to the to the customer show the value to the customer and then grow the business from that foot point and that can be today uh, on a marketing uh, um, application tomorrow it can be on an engineering application and the day after it could be on a manufacturing application it doesn't matter where you start as long as it is gives the, the value to the customer and if you have done that proof then you can grow the business to uh, to extend to to anywhere excellent Fascinating um, stuff. I was about to ask, what are you excited about the future? But I think you've covered a lot of what's coming up there. <laughs> yeah, I think the future is bright. The world is changing, um, uh, changing rapidly. Again, maybe it is this fed by by COVID as well. That that uh, as a community, we are starting to think differently. Uh, you see, also, uh, I, I don't know how it is within ATS, but if you're looking in, uh, within Siemens, we talk about um, uh, uh, the virtual first uh, company. Uh, so where where your home office is your uh, yeah your, your your prime office and where the uh, physical office will become uh, more an, a collaboration platform where you can meet uh, with with other people but it is not per se and and an really office and you know I think that that will happen with our customers as well they will look differently uh, to their business um, uh, they have to be more agile uh, uh, also to changes that will come and yeah that uh, for that they require more software so that's in the end also good for us of course fantastic i think we might be running uh, up towards the end of our time uh, but <laughs> lots of interesting stuff and I'm, I'm sure there's stuff we can double back on next time you're available for a chat oh, very good i'm uh, i'm happy to talk for hours more <laughs> <laughs> as is always the case uh yeah thank you so much for joining us jasper and uh we'll speak again soon Uh, okay, so for this tech spot in the Atlas podcast, uh, we're going to be talking SCADA HMI, not HDMI, uh, and the Industrial Internet of Things. Now, I know this is these are systems that you have a bit of history with, so yeah, enlighten us. Yeah, they've been around for quite a while, really. I mean, as long as I've been working in this kind of industry, um, we've been looking at how you can visualize what's happening within a control system. So we've talked about PLCs before, programmable logic controllers that control everything from our 
our pumping stations for pumping water around to the uh, traffic lights. They're all controlled by PLCs um, mm -hmm. and factories and machinery and robots. And there's so many uses for a PLC. But how do you visualize that information from a PLC? Mm -hmm. um, because when we're really looking at that information, there used to be what we call mimic boards. Um, and those mimic boards would be a, a, a diagram they'll be laid out and you can imagine those great big old control room stations that, that you see images of where there's you know whole walls of these mimic uh, boards and they they're basically a, a representation of whatever is being controlled and then you'd have different lighting systems to say whether something was open or closed if it was a valve or a, a motor was starting or if there was a, an alarm you know you get a flashing beacon and all of that goes off and that was the first um visual representation of any control system and at the time a lot of the control systems were basically called relay logic of which was then moved into from the physical form of relays into the logical form that are in the plcs um so yeah we're going to focus on the visualization aspect of that um right so taking those mimic boards and putting them inside a computer basically um, and that's in essence, what a, a SCADA system is. So SCADA supervisory control and data acquisition. So the supervisory control bit is, can you represent those buttons um, that you're going to press to start something or open a valve or start a process? You represent those buttons as a lot of the time, almost like uh, you know, facsimiles of a real button, really, mm. presented on a computer screen. So as a part of what a SCADA system gives you, it gives you these libraries of mimics that you can use and you can position those mimics in a similar way as you might have done on a mimic board, um, or those icons, and uh, but you might do it differently on a computer screen because if you can imagine, you've got this great big wall, maybe 20 meters long by five meters high, you can't really fit that into a computer screen. Um, yeah. So you need a way of navigating yourself around the mimics, um, and then you need a graphical way of uh, representing that information. And that's what those, those um, uh, libraries were for. So rather than you having to, draw, to redraw a switch or redraw a lamp or whatever it is, you could just quickly and rapidly bring those mimics on where you wanted them to represent maybe um, a pipe circuitry or a, or a or like I said, or a motor system or whatever it is, parcel delivery system. Um, yeah, so it allows for much greater flexibility and interchangeability, I guess. So, yeah, because yeah. those walls, as impressive and beautiful as they are, I can't imagine are easy to realign when you no, change your equipment. Exactly. And that's the problem is they're very, yeah, very difficult. And one, you have to wire them all up and you have to, you know, um, debug them in those kind of ways but yeah and then secondly if you change something you can't change them at all or, or very difficult to change those types of things um so that's what that does so once you have that mimic what you're doing is tying it up to pieces of data and those data come from the plc generally um so the plc itself is bringing those inputs from the real world so your your, your switches your analog sensors and then it's pushing your outputs um, to turn on valves and drive your motors. But at the same time, it needs to then communicate outside of that control system and bring it inside the, the world of the 
human, so the human can interact with that control system. Um, and that way of moving that data from the control system uh, to the uh, SCADA system is generally uh, used as a type of protocol. Um, and that protocol is known in most worlds as OPC. So um, OPC is a way of getting information um, or setting information inside of a PLC through a SCADA system that represents the, the real world that you're trying to control. Um, An OPC has got a bit of a, 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 a long history in itself. Um, so OPC um, stands for object linking and embedding for process control, um, which once again is quite a, a long phrase for such yeah, a it's a handful. Thing. Yeah, and it's actually built on a very older, an even older technology called OLAY, which is um, in itself an acronym as well. <laughs> so you've got acronyms <laughs> built within acronyms, and OLAY was um, the way of object linking and embedding, which was predominantly used in the micro, well, is used as a part of the Microsoft system. So things like Excel and Word and um, all of those things can basically talk to each other. Um, and it done it through a, a process built within it called, I'm going to go on with another acronym now, um, COM, mm -hmm. COM or DCOM, which is a component uh, object model. Um, so all of those fundamentals of COM, DCOM, um, OLAY, were all fundamentals of the Windows operating system and are still today. Um, and then this OPC was built on top of that to utilize those kind of mechanisms built within the Windows system. And as you can see, early days, most computers were just Windows. And that's why this kind of OPC technology in its original forms, um, there were two original forms, DA, direct access, um, and HDA, which is for historical data. Um, it was built on that technology, but that had a, a lot of limitations. Um, so you could only run it on a Windows operating system. Um, there was um, a potential there for security because you had to make sure your COM and your DCOM settings were all set correctly, and it's very complicated aspect. Um, uh, and then you'd have to get all of your, your kind of OPC layer, which is called basically tagging of that information from the addresses in the PLC to tags, and those as tags are then wired up in the inverted commas to your your mimics on your SCADA system. Mm. So it's quite a complicated process ultimately to get that kind of information out of the PLC, address it to the uh, the addresses of the, the memory locations in the PLC, get it through this um, onto this OPC layer, into your DCOM, did it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what happened over time um, on all of this is, again, this isn't great, this isn't so easy. So then OPC came out with a, a what they call a unified architecture, OPC UA. And that's what's predominantly used today. You can still get, you still get a lot of systems that are still working on the DA stuff and it's still a pain. Um, but UA meant that it moved away from that uh, Microsoft fundamentals. Mm -hmm. So you didn't require um, all of that setting of your COM, your DCOM. It didn't even need to be an, a Microsoft operating system. Um, you can buy OPC UA chips uh, that you can actually embed in your electronics that will actually ultimately just 
transport that into an OPC UA format. And that's why we move from having a PLC to having a SCADA system um, and to having now talking about IoT. Mm. Uh, because IoT does require different types of communication. And when we talk about that, we can use OPC UA with embedded chips in embedded devices, and we can use that to communicate using OPC UA to whatever system it is. We can communicate up into the cloud, we can communicate to an IoT platform, we can communicate with a SCADA system, etc., etc. And the OPC Foundation now has been created really uh, to look after all of those aspects of OPC and the communications and the technology and also um, the structures and schemas and all of that type of thing that go along with these types of types of technologies. Um, your, your favorite one there, Alex, which is your HMI. Um, love HMI. Love HMI. Uh, so a SCADA generally is a, a more factory-wide system where you would, or if you're in a power station or something like that, it would be the system that looks across multiple sources of information and you could have multiple terminals looking at that. So it's a, a bigger, grander system. An HMI is just what you'd have on the machine itself. So if you were having, a um, say, a CNC lathe, and you'd have a, a mimic of the machine, that would be where the person operating the machine would interface with. Right, the person and HMI stands for? Human Machine Interface. Oh, perfect. So, as it describes, so yeah, so it, it's not as a powerful technology. It tends to have a small amount of data that it's managing, um, and uh, it, its purpose is really more of a one-to-one -one relationship between one PLC on one screen there's obviously blurring of these lines because multiple systems can be used as a you can have a factory-wide hmi system um, mm. but um yeah it's just more difficult to manage and control basically uh, if you haven't got that kind of way um so yeah we've talked about siemens you know with the um uh platforms that they have so siemens one of the they are a big producer of plcs probably the biggest global producer of PLCs there are, and they have their HMI and their SCADA systems that go with it. And over time, what they've done is purchase some of those systems from other companies or whatever it is. Um, and now they're kind of unifying the terminology around that. So yeah, WinCC is the SCADA system of, of um, that Siemens produced, and they have lots of different variants of that. And they're not all quite the same, but um, you know they're all like branded under the same label. So you have WinCC specifically for HMIs for machine builders, and you have WinCC for SCADA systems across the whole platform, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Um, but the more modern SCADA systems is where you get that blurring between what a a peer, what a SCADA system is and an IoT platform is. Yeah. Because now with scalable cloud technology or whatever it is and iot is bigger than a factory because iot is talking about getting data across a city or across a country or whatever it is um mm. uh, you know there's lots and lots of data there that can be gained from all kinds of sensors you wouldn't try and necessarily do that in a scada system so now you've got this another area of blurring between 
kind of powerful SCADA systems that are trying to become IoT platforms, and then you've got the IoT platforms that exist in the cloud that have no idea what a SCADA system is. Mm -hmm. not, you know, so we've got this lineage from HMIs that happen to be local to the machine. Then we've got SCADA systems that could be in a cell or a factory. Um, you don't tend to get multiple SCADA systems, you know, across factories. You, there are some systems that start to do that. And when we talk to um, about inductive automation, where their systems can do across multiple factories. And then you've kind of got your IoT platforms that can go across, yeah, complete lots and lots of factories and lots and lots of districts and dimensions and these types of things. So that's why they're, they're all on the same lineage, but IoT has come quite recently with the different technologies and the different scalable capabilities that are built into them. And along with that, um, there is a bit of a discussion whether OPC UA or MT Connect are the protocols preferred by IoT platforms. Um, because once again, OPC has grown out of this world of needing to connect a PLC to a HMI or a SCADA system and wasn't originally designed for our IoT world. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, it's a bit more heavier protocol. It's a bit more, um, takes more power consumption. Um, where I, I empty connectors of a lighter weight transportation uh, protocol. And therefore, if you would did have battery dependent devices, you would they wouldn't consume as much power from the system, for example. Mm. So yeah, fascinating. I think what uh, what really gets me about all this stuff is, if we think about what we started off with there, these big walls of information that are mm. just relaying, not just but that are relaying information about specific bits of a facility all back to a human element, whether that's a person or a team, and the natural progression of that up towards IoT, IIoT, where actually it's not just feeding back information to a human element, but these individual things that are producing data that can be fed back are feeding it to each other mm. and affecting each other as well. So yeah, it turns from just very much a visual representation of a fixed system into something that can be really modular and um, yeah, impactful in a sort of iterative way. Oh yeah, a, a modular way. Hmm. And what the way the industrial internet of things uh, uh, talk about, they talk about systems of systems. It's mm. like there's a system built within systems and yeah, you've got the control system, you've got the factory system, you've got the enterprise system. And you know, you kind of build up those systems of systems and some protocols will work very good in some areas. But one thing you've got to remember with all of this is that each individual piece of data in that kind of control system world is a fixed memory location and therefore it is almost like you're wiring up these systems. Um, so yeah, to turn a light on, you've got to know the address of the light that you're trying to talk to. Mm -hmm. you know, so it's in, a it's in a very different way of managing data to that of a database system where you're kind of querying data and you're getting lots of data sets back. In this kind of world, it's almost more like a hose pipe where data is being squirted at you constantly, but you've got to know exactly the name of the hose pipe that's coming towards you. And there could be a hundred thousand hose pipe coming at you. <laughs> you know? 
it's that it's that kind of interpretation of that information you're getting it you're getting data coming at you every millisecond or every second and you've got to know what to do with that information love it okay well that was incredibly geeky i feel like i learned something um so i guess that's what we're trying to achieve well, you know, occasionally, like I said, we do turn a bit geeky, but we, we, we'll probably try and get less geeky next week, maybe. Sounds good to me. Okay. Uh, well, thank you again, as always, for joining me, Martin. No problem, Alex. And I will leave you with a quote. I've gone literary this time, Marcel Proust, uh, and he says, the real voyage of discovery lies not in seeking new lands, but in seeing with new eyes. Is that going to be our next tech spot, the human brain interface? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we'll take that literally, not philosophically. <laughs> no, I, I, I deliberately subverted that because I didn't want to get into a deep discussion about it. So, I, yeah, I brought it back into the real world. <laughs> I like it. All right, I will uh, see you next week. All right, cheers, Alex. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out 